Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. When I eased back on the control column, the nose of the Boeing 737 lifted slowly over the end of the runway and above the glittering yellow lights of the eternal city of Rome. Having overflown the city, I engaged the Boeing's automatic pilot and set course on the 2,500 kilometre flight to Dublin. We had been delayed in Rome Ciampino Airport and it was in the wee small hours of the morning that I climbed the Boeing along the coast of the Tyrrhenian Sea. And back in the cabin, almost 200 passengers settled down with a snack, drinks or snuggled into their blankets. The cabin crew dimmed the lights for sleep. Shortly afterwards, we crossed over the French coast at Nice and tracked the necklace of lights stretching ahead along the Rhone Valley. We now bid Arrivederci to Rome Air Traffic Control and switched over to French radar in Paris. The French controller welcomed us with typical Gallic nonchalance. My co-pilot on this trip was a very new, very affable and very enthusiastic young 25-year-old. Besides being an excellent pilot, he also happened to enjoy making radio calls. This is a common condition with all new pilots and generally lasts until the flying hours build up and the novelty wears off a little bit. Now, a very important aviation radio procedure consists in checking in with air traffic control every 10 minutes. During normal hours, this isn't needed because there's so much traffic, radio calls are taking place constantly anyway. But tonight, unusually, we were the only aircraft operating in that part of the night sky. Therefore, my co-pilot said his timer running and every 10 minutes on the dot, he called the French controller. The radio patter sounded something like this. Paris Control, Ryanair 242, flight level 400, radio check. Uh, Ryanair 242, reading you strength 5. And strength 5 is radio shorthand for reading you loud and clear. Ryanair 242, Roger, strength 5. As we routed towards the east of Paris, my co-pilot made these identical radio checks religiously every 10 minutes, and all with the same air traffic controller. In my mind's eye, I visualised the controller almost alone in a vast ATC centre, watching a single green dot, representing our radar signature, blipping very slowly across his screen. I imagined him puffing on a galois with an overflowing ashtray and a plastic cup of tepid coffee at his desk. His reverie was rudely interrupted every 10 minutes by an Irish voice from 40,000 feet calling for another identical radio check. As our flight progressed and the number of radio checks totted up, I vaguely detected a declining enthusiasm in his response. However, it was a beautiful night for flying and I didn't want to disrupt the soothing ambiance of this very peaceful starflight. Our flight plan took us to a navigation beacon close to the old rugby stadium at Colomier, a place well known to Irish rugby fans of a certain vintage. After Colomier, we turned towards the Channel Coast at Bologna. Now, with the shimmering lights of Paris glowing on my left, my co-pilot requested the radio check once again. Silence ensued for about 10 seconds and then the radio crackled into life. Are you feeling lonely up there tonight, Ryanair? Would you like me to sing you a little song? 
It took a couple of seconds for this surprising reply to register. My co-pilot glanced over at me, somewhat wide-eyed and stuck for words. Perhaps subconsciously commenting on his career choice of late-night air traffic controlling, with little or no thought I keyed my microphone. How about Edith Piaf and no regrets? After a few seconds pause, our French friend replied with a hearty laugh, and we three joined together in a moment of air-to-ground laughter, spanning an arc of hundreds of nautical miles across the airways. Some ten minutes later, as we approached the coast at Bologna, our air traffic friend called us for the final time and bid us merci, au revoir. My co-pilot bid him farewell with merci and slán lath. A double click from the controller's microphone wrapped up this very human exchange within the normally high-tech and business-like world of aviation. With the sun now rising behind us and the yellow lights of London glowing over the nose of the cockpit, we crossed over the English Channel towards Dublin and home. One summer in my student days, a friend and I went to work in Montpellier in the south of France. We lived in a tiny room at the top floor of an old apartment building in a dodgy part of town. A small double bed, a single wardrobe, a sink and a two-ringed cooker was all that the room could hold. The loo was on the landing outside and was shared with the occupant of the only other room on our floor, a travelling salesman we heard infrequently but never saw. Our shower, located on the floor beneath ours, was also shared with people we never saw. One of our jobs during that summer was at a small two-star hotel in the old part of the city, close to the Place de la Comédie, which was part of the city's red-light district. It was run by a wonderful middle-aged woman who had recently lost her husband. Madame Luke's, as we called her, was warm, kind, softly spoken and very trusting. She was also overwhelmed by grief and by the responsibility of running a business that had previously been managed single-handedly by her husband. We befriended this gentle soul and supported her as best we could, often staying on after work to chat and problem-solve. As she had no family living in Montpellier, she began to rely on our companionship, believing we were angels sent by her late husband to help in her hour of need. Madame Lukes had one child, a daughter, Marianne, who was about 16. She was a shy girl and also grieving her father's death. She didn't appear to have any friends and led an abnormally reclusive life for a girl her age. Then, out of the blue, she acquired a boyfriend. Vincent was a much older guy with a cocky and overly familiar way about him. He seemed to us to be a most unlikely suitor for the shy and retiring Marianne and we were highly suspicious of his motives in the liaison. Madame, though, always trusting, welcomed him warmly, believing him to be another angel sent by her husband from beyond the grave. 
Towards the end of our stay, Madame asked us if we would consider taking over the running of the hotel for two weeks to allow herself and Marianne to take a holiday. Attracted by the prospect of getting out of our cramped living quarters and full of a sense of youthful invincibility, we agreed. The downside to the arrangement was that Vincent would be staying with us, something which Madame considered would be of huge benefit to us. Before she left, Madame briefed us as best she knew on the running of the hotel. One of her few instructions was that we were jamais, jamais, never to let rooms to the pimps and prostitutes in the area. In all the years her husband had run the hotel, he had apparently never allowed the hotel to become an active part of the city's red light district. And Madame was determined to follow his lead. We waved her off, assuring her that all would be well. She was no sooner gone than Vincent approached us with a proposition. He told us he had connections with a few of the pimps in the area and could turn over the rooms in the hotel several times a day, letting them by the hour to the girls on the street, an arrangement from which we would all get a cut. We were horrified by his betrayal of Madame's trust and refused to have anything to do with his plan. Despite this, Vincent established his sideline behind our backs and there was little we could do to stop him. Daily rows between us ensued as rooms we thought we'd let for the night were vacated within the hour. We threatened to let Madame know what was going on, but Vincent couldn't have cared less. He made it clear he regarded her as a fool and saw Hotel Luke's as his for the taking. We were determined to expose him to Madame, but we had to bide our time. We knew that if we contacted her, she would hot-foot it back and lose the opportunity for her much-needed break. So a few days before she and Marianne were due to return, we rang her, giving her a full account of everything that had been going on in her absence. She was appalled, of course, but true to character, she was mostly sad for Marianne, as she knew her daughter would be devastated at Vincent's betrayal. And to our surprise, she took swift, decisive action. Within the hour, she had phoned Vincent, telling him to pack his bags and leave the hotel, and that neither she nor Marianne wanted anything further to do with him. Vincent moved out later that day, and our days as madams came to a welcome and abrupt end. Now I like to think of Madame Luke's content in her retirement, And I hope that occasionally she remembers fondly her two Irish angels. On the 21st of January, 1793, as he faced the guillotine, Louis XVI, King of France, was attended by an Irish-born priest, Henry Edgeworth, known in France as Abbé Edgeworth de Firmont. Henry Essex Edgeworth was born in St John's Rectory in Edgeworthstown, County Longford, in 1745. 
He was, however, raised in Toulouse in France, to where his father, the Church of Ireland rector of Edgewardstown, was obliged to move his family following his rather sensational decision to convert to Catholicism. Young Henry studied for the priesthood and was ordained as a Catholic priest in Paris. At this time, he adopted the addition of de Firmont to his name, Fermount being the name of an estate in Ireland that the family owned. Over the following 20 years, he devoted himself to a ministry of the poor in the slums of Paris. His reputation grew such that on the recommendation of the Archbishop of Paris, he was chosen by the King's sister, Elizabeth of France, as her confessor. He thus became a frequent visitor to the Tuileries Palace and this role led to his part in one of the most important events in the history of France and its revolution. A full account of the heroic part he played in those chaotic days in French history is provided for us by the Abbe Edgeworth's own memoir of the last hours of King Louis' life written after his own almost miraculous escape from France. On the eve of his execution, the doomed king requested that the abbe attend him. The minister of justice himself carried the request to the priest and accompanied him to the temple prison where the king was held. They arrived at a scene that was almost apocalyptic. Drunken guards of fearsome demeanour at times blocked their way. It was, recall the abbe, a scene horrible beyond description. After some time, they were led up a narrow, winding stairway to the king's quarters and into the presence of the king. The Minister of Justice read the decree of execution, fixed for the following morning. The king was calm, the only calm person present, according to the abbe. When he saw the priest, the king ushered all out of the room and closed the door himself. Over the following hours, priest and king prayed and conversed deeply and intimately. The priest recalled a scene of great sadness but resignation on the part of the king and a determination to meet his end with dignity. He witnessed at some slight remove the heart-rending farewells the king was allowed with his wife and children. Astonishingly, Abbe Edgeworth persuaded the king's captors to allow him to celebrate mass in his cell. To their protests that they could not find a priest or the things necessary to celebrate a mass, the abbe replied, The priest is found. I am he. The nearest church will supply all that is required. Thus he put his own head on the block. Revolutionaries were hunting priests all over France. The following morning, in the king's chamber, the abbe found an altar perfectly prepared with everything required, more even than he had asked. King and confessor celebrated Mass together. At eight o'clock, the king, accompanied by a large body of soldiers, departed the temple for the place of execution. To the surprise of both, the abbe was permitted to accompany him in the carriage. The journey was at snail's pace through crowded streets. Just after ten o'clock, they arrived at today's Place de la Concorde. A vast crowd was gathered there, contained by apparently endless massed ranks of soldiers. The king alighted from the carriage and insisted on removing his scarf and jacket himself. The executioners produced a rope to tie his hands. The king shrank back in horror. 
Do what you have been ordered, but you shall never bind me, he said. The Abbe recalled this as probably the most terrible moment of that dreadful morning. The king stared in desperation at him, his only friend present. It seemed the men would lay hands upon the king, which was unthinkable. They explained to the abbe that it was necessary to bind the king's hands to prevent their interfering with the falling blade. A terrible impasse seemed inevitable. The king continued to look desperately at the priest for guidance. And then the abbe spoke. Sire, in this latest outrage, I see only the last trace of resemblance between your majesty and the God who is about to reward you. This brilliant piece of emotional intelligence gave the poor king to see himself as Christ bound and led to the slaughter. He raised his eyes to heaven and said, Surely nothing less than his example could make me submit to a similar affront. Do what you will, I will drink from this chalice even to the dregs. His hands were then bound, though not with rope. The chief executioner, thinking the king's objection was to a rope, took off his own scarf and bound the king's hands with it. King and confessor, arm in arm, climbed the steps of the scaffold. As he reached it, the king stepped firmly forward and addressed the crowd in a strong and resonant voice. I die innocent of all the crimes laid at my charge. I pardon those who have occasioned my death and I pray to God that the blood you are now going to shed may never be visited on France. He would have continued, but the drums were ordered to be beaten to drown out anything further he might say. He was then bundled quickly under the guillotine. As the blade descended, the Abbe Edgeworth de Firmont fell to his knees upon the scaffold. His final words to the dying king heard by everyone around. Fils de Saint-Louis, monte au ciel. Son of Saint-Louis, ascend to heaven. In summer 1986, I managed to land a job in a smart hotel in Paris. On my first day, having borrowed a friend's fancy jacket, I went to the reception desk in the lobby and I asked in my best French how I could get to the room service section. The diligent receptionist replied, Of course, sir, room service. What is your room number? I explained that I'd be working in the room service section. I couldn't afford to buy a cup of coffee in the hotel, never mind stay as a guest. The hotel was Le Bristol, and I was intrigued to discover that its founder had spent part of his childhood in Dublin. Born in France in 1893, Hippolyte Jamais lived from the age of 6 to 17 in Dublin. His father was one of the owners of the famous Jamais restaurant, also called Jamet's, which at the time was on St Andrew's Street, 
near the junction with Suffolk Street, where the Monty Malone statue is today. It later moved to Nassau Street. Hippolyte ran barefoot through the streets of early 20th century Dublin, and by all accounts he had a great sense of fun. He spent many hours working in the restaurant and learning every aspect of the catering business. A big day in the restaurant's history was when King George V and Queen Mary made a royal visit to Dublin in 1911. That day, the restaurant façade was decorated with garlands of flowers and numerous flags, including the French flag. Typical menus included turtle soup, braised fillets of veal with sliced truffles, boar's head and roasted pheasant. As told in a book about jamais by Alison Maxwell and a PhD thesis by Martin Makanumara. During World War I, Hippolyte served with the French army as a cook. He was appalled by poison gas warfare, having seen its painful effects and the slow deaths suffered by its victims. After the war, he decided to build his own hotel in Paris and he made sure it included a huge anti-gas shelter in the basement. Le Bristol opened in 1925 and was regarded as one of the most luxurious hotels in Paris. Hippolyte published an ad in the Irish Times in 1925 saying, Le Bristol, new hotel, now open in Paris. 200 rooms, 160 bathrooms. Same management as the Jamais restaurant in Dublin. Best attention reserved for Irish guests. During World War II, the presence of the gas shelter was a key factor in the decision by the American ambassador to France to rent the hotel for American citizens and diplomats visiting Paris. At the beginning of the war, America wasn't at war with Germany and so the German authorities were willing to allow the hotel to be used in this way. The German military didn't requisition the hotel for their own purposes, as they did with many others in Paris. Ippoli protected a Jewish architect, Leo Lehrmann, who lived in the Bristol Hotel during the war. During the day, Leo stayed in his room to avoid being arrested and sent to a concentration camp. At night, he walked the corridors and developed detailed plans for renovation of the hotel, which would happen after the war. The hotel was one of the first hotels in France to offer room service or in-room dining. Everybody who was anybody stayed there, including Harry Truman, Grace Kelly, Mick Jagger, Queen Elizabeth II and David and Victoria Beckham. Roisin Hood from Dublin, a member of the Jamais family, visited the Bristol in 1947 and said Hippolyte had the thickest Dublin accent you could imagine. She said he was very small and dark and very dapper. He had lovely twinkling eyes and he was very funny. Hippolyte continued to manage the hotel for decades. After his death in 1964, his son, one of his ten children, took it over. In 1978, it was bought by the Utger Group, but it's still called Le Bristol. And Hippolyte's name lives on there. The children's play area in the hotel is called the Friends of Hippolyte, or Les Amis d'Hippolyte. Back on my first day, I was escorted to the room service section in the basement, where the gas shelter had been. It was a maze of corridors, with large numbers of staff milling around. It was tough work, with early morning starts and very busy days. I got on very well with the other staff. They helped me a lot 
when I had language difficulties. There was a sense of professionalism, but also a sense of camaraderie and fun. We had a good laugh. It seemed that Ippolit's wit and good humour were still there in the collective culture of the management and staff. When I got back to Dublin, I found out more about Jamé's restaurant. The Andrew Street premises had become a bank. The Nassau Street premises had become a steakhouse restaurant, the Burney Inn, later Judge Roy Beans, and later again the Porterhouse Central Bar. One Saturday afternoon, I visited the steakhouse and thought about how the little boy would have been weaving in and out of the tables 80 years before. I felt Ippolit's presence as his spirit lived on in that restaurant. His strong sense of fun, picked up as a child in Dublin, never died. Returning home to Ireland, slowly, very slowly, after a lazy summer spent driving around France and Italy. Late one evening, towards the end of August, on the day before my 30th birthday, we reached the little town of Courmayeur. The town's small hotels all turned out to be full, and we couldn't sleep in the car. It was packed with goodies not easily found in Ireland in those days. Italian coffee, yellow peppers, fresh figs. So there was nothing else for it. We would see if the most expensive-looking hotel in town had availability. To our delight, not only did the receptionist there offer us a room at a ridiculously affordable rate, but as a special extra, he threw in free tickets for the ski lift that would take us up the lower slopes of the nearby Mont Blanc the following day. This was promising to be one great birthday. The following morning, before heading off to tackle Mont Blanc, I first went downstairs to retrieve something from the car. There, in the very plush and very empty hotel lobby, all alone stood Samuel Beckett. He looked just like he did in countless photos. I remember streaks of silvery hair standing up a deeply tanned, deeply lined face, a bright blue checked shirt. He stood quite still, as if he were waiting for someone. There was no one else around. Time stood still. What should I do? Should I go up to the Nobel laureate and tell him that I was Irish? So what, he might think. Should I tell him how much I liked everything he had written? No, too gushing. Should I ask him for his autograph? Perish the thought. Everyone knows how much he valued his privacy, and anyhow, he was on holidays. Following some rapid agonising, I decided that the best thing to do was to do nothing. After a while, a woman of about his own age came down to join him. I followed them to the main door, which Beckett held open for me. 
at that stage, even if I had wanted to say something, anything, I simply couldn't. I was dumbstruck. The couple then drove off in a car with a Paris registration plate. And that was that. I returned to the reception desk. This was decades before current concerns around privacy and security. So I asked the receptionist how long more the Becketts were staying. Monsieur and Madame Beckett are staying another week, he replied, helpful as ever. So I left a note for Beckett. I explained that I had recognised him in the lobby, but that I hadn't wanted to disturb him. After all, he was on holidays. I told him how much I had always loved his work and that I had always found it bleakly funny, despite being told at university that it was simply bleak. I added that meeting him, or at least seeing him, was the best 30th birthday present imaginable, better even than a trip up Mont Blanc. And then I forgot all about it. But when we eventually returned home, among the usual bills and junk mail, nestled an envelope with an Italian stamp. It contained a postcard covered in small, neat, slanted, black, near-illegible writing. The only words I could make out at first were the signature, from Barbara. This I read with some annoyance, as most of the women in my family are called Barbara. My mother, grandmother, sister, a clutch of nieces and a constellation of cousins. Wouldn't you think she'd say which barber she is? I grumbled. And then the fog lifted. The two-word sign-off did not read from Barbara, but Sam Beckett. Thanks for your moving letter. Sorry you didn't talk to me, he wrote. Before adding, best wishes for the third decade and thenceforward, Sam Beckett. It is well known that Beckett was a prolific correspondent. The four-volume edition of his letters, published by the Cambridge University Press, weighs in at over 5.5 kilos and contains almost 3,500 pages. My single, unexpected, handwritten postcard contains just a couple of dozen words and weighs in at a mere six grams. Nonetheless, for me, it remains something precious, unique and heartwarming. And for the arithmetically sharp amongst you, you may have spotted a mistake in Beckett's message. Contrary to what he wrote, my 30th birthday was the start not of my third, but of my fourth decade. So, could this be an entry point into a study of mistakes and misunderstandings? in the work of Samuel Beckett. In this morning's selection of new and archive pieces, we heard No Regrets 2004 by Frank Keegan, and then Misplaced Montpellier Mesdames by Anne-Marie Sheridan. Then there was John Hedigan with Confessor to the King, followed by The Parisian Hotel by Darius Whelan, and finally, Waiting for Beckett by Grace Neville. The music this morning, we began with Je ne regrette rien by Edith Piaf. Then, Sicilienne, Pelias and Melisande by Fauré, 
played by Julian Lloyd Webber on cello, with John Lenehan on piano. That was followed by In Paradisum, also from Requiem by Foray, sung by the Cambridge Singers and directed by John Rutter. And our final piece of music, La Vie en Rose by Grace Jones. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other RTE Arts and Culture programmes, you can go to rte.ie forward slash culture. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.